This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance and a whole lot of love along the way. I'm Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hey all. today's episode is somewhat of a companion piece to the previous one, so if you haven't listened to that yet, I suggest you give it a go. For those who have... We'll be continuing our chat with philosopher and medical ethicist Stephen Herman about the worlds we perceive, the different lives they allow us to lead, and why we imagine in order to find truth or to reach. So join us today as we talk about magical lands, Faust, analogies, and how we shape things into beginnings, middles, and ends so that we can better make sense of them. We hope you enjoy There could be a lot of fear or hesitation or something that stymies us to believe that we'll never quite arrive at what was seen or we'd like to describe. If you think back to your favorite descriptions or depictions of the other world in fiction and games, which ones have stood out to you most and why? I think of those that, yeah, interestingly, those that I think of the most, the descriptions I love the most are not maybe those that most accurately got whatever the idea was but that painted the most beautiful picture. So when I think of, of, of worlds that fascinate me, I think of worlds that when they showed me what the world was like, I bought in completely. More name drops here. Like I think of recently I've been reading, or I just finished reading uh, the Devabod trilogy, which is by... Um, yes, I was just reading that. Yes. Uh, what's her uh, S.A. Chakraborty. Yes. And it is this excellent depiction of this world and all these, these mythical fire-based creatures and water-based creatures and wind-based creatures and kind of the whole system around it. And at the end of the day, I bought in because the world that I was shown 
that uh, that the author wrote that she wrote. I don't know what the relation of that world to the world that you know she wanted to write or she thought she was capturing is. But what I know is that that book that she wrote to get at it, uh, or those three books, I guess, mm-hmm. were something I wanted to read. And so the picture itself was beautiful. So to me, and this might sound a little weird, to me, when I wrote that book or those books or I read those kinds of books, I don't care so much about the noumena as I do about the author's representation of the noumena because that's what's valuable to me. It's what helps you arrive at what, if not where or what they're trying to describe in something like. Yes. I, I wonder, going back to that dream or the idea of the revelation, that here is the monolith that will preserve all knowledge beyond time so that when others arrive, they will know what we were like. And I wonder, one, if in those rudimentary depictions of man, sun, tree, stars, and other things so described, they will read anything at all as we intended into the ordering of them, or if in simply encountering and trying to make sense of them for themselves, they will to that monolith other stories ascribe. Mm -hmm. And is that too fine? (laughs) You know, it goes back to the, um, the concept we were talking about at the beginning, which was the death of the author. Uh, and, the, and the concept of shared storytelling. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, specifics that goes into the death of the author. And I... That's another episode, definitely. That is another episode. But but the idea of shared storytelling, that, you know, what you have shown me, regardless of what you intended, what you showed me is something valuable and beautiful and something that I get something else out of. And... And I think that that's itself powerful. And again, again, maybe part of the reason this works for me in fiction where I'm less optimistic about it in something like philosophy is because to me, philosophy is about the truth of this reality. And so I am less interested in the picture because... That's not what you live in. That's not what I live in. I don't live in the picture. I live in reality. And so I want to know the contours of reality. I don't want to know the contours of this picture. But when you get to something like fiction, that becomes less less important because by itself already, the picture is itself as valuable as the thing that was intended, at least for me, I guess. I think in a way, as you said earlier, the depictions of other worlds, other realms, other sides either internally within a given text or narrative or on the whole as reflections of things that we within our world contemplate, imagine, bring to life, are ways to establish the null sets, the null hypothesis, hypothesis, without having to also live that life in entirety. Mm -hmm. We can live generations. We can imagine worlds where magic and fiends and monsters exist. In Devabad, it's, I think, inspired by the notion of the jinn as they existed in cultures prior to oh, prior to the Christianization and the there, there's some I believe in the book too influence of Muslim history and culture mm-hmm. and society mm-hmm. so yeah the prophet Solomon is considered or there's King Solomon and they have their own prophets some of the jinn themselves are worshiping Muslims which is an interesting narrative point of conflict in itself because they have in existence prior to that where they within the book are described as 
the gods that lived. So there is Sobek, the Egyptian god of the Nile. Right. He is a merit, a spirit of the ocean, of the water, of rivers. There is Tiamat. Tiamat exists in the ocean. There was Marduk who has kept her trapped there. There, So there is the mythology of our world, but it is within a specific and finite shape that matches the mythology that she's evolved into or crafted for this story. And as much as we can see and recognize, and there are world places like Cairo and Afghanistan and so on, there's the invasions historically of Egypt that are referenced within the narrative so that there's historical context and the main character's history and why she flees and still longs for her homeland in Cairo. We can, we can live this world of fantasy and see the choices people make in it. And I suppose it's not too surprising that they face the same choices we do and have to make the same decisions or kinds that we do, because even if our characters themselves are mildly fantastic, I still think at heart there's a certain desire to see the kind of lives we might have in those same circumstances. It's not necessarily that the characters are extensions of other art, given sales per se, but we want to see human decisions and choices being made, even if the characters themselves are not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of the, so we can, we can distinguish between the metaphysical, the what is, and the epistemic, which is what we believe, the, subjecti- the subjectivity, if you will. And I, I, I think of the fact that no less important, realistically speaking, are the, those possible worlds that are metaphysically possible in that they, they are ways that the world actually could be. There are still the epistemic possible worlds. There are those possible worlds that, for all I know, might have been, or, or that they're my best links to, these are things that I think could be. These are ways that I think the world could have been. But we don't have a way to truly know or not know. Yet. Exactly. There's no, there's no means by which to confirm, but should they be, they would allow other things to also make sense and be. Exactly. And so when you think of reading a fiction, what are you reading? Are you reading the metaphysically possible or are you reading the epistemically possible? And I would I would venture to gather that you're reading a another person's, you are, you are yourself putting an, a, a subjective lens on another person's subjective lens of what is possible. <laughs> it's like two, it's two orders back. It, it's a, it is its own creation in that moment. It is yet another world brought into existence. That is the moment of one teacup or pitcher of water being poured into another. Mm-hmm. And whatever the shape of that recipient cup or pitcher is like, it makes me go back to the opening first page of the book. And again, I had not intended to mention this, but it is salient to the conversation. You're familiar with Faust, right? Yes. Okay. I figure you've made your own bargains in time. <laughs> I meant I meant personally familiar, not with the book, but with the individual. <laughs> yes. Okay. In the story I write, there is the now and the then, and one Connor character narrates now, Connor, Adam narrates then. That's mostly in the same five or six years of things happening. There are also other narratives, things that happened before that are important to the way they are now. Connor is referred to as C.S. This is an ancestor of his in the earlier version of this, so C.S. McNevin, S. Rasathanta. I wrote this so long ago in the very beginning of this draft, but it's a note or letter C.S. writes to Adam at one point, describing some of his reflections at the time, and it says, stay time in your own decanter. 
that I might drink it all in one. And the title is Faust Abridged, because that ultimately is what Faust wanted, to have it all right now and forever. Mm -hmm. And I think about, in reflection, why that is the opening of the book that plays so much with thought memory and time, or death memory and time, and probably a little bit of recursion, but none of those are the point, right? It's about these two friends, one who wants to have a wish granted and the other who wants to save a life, and what happens when they try to make things right. And it's so funny, yes, that we go back to this image of pouring out from the one making the story to the one receiving the story, then receiving it, but there are already two different shapes changing the way the story is conveyed without even looking into the greater context of the moments in time in which, because these aren't synchronous acts. I'm not pouring from one glass into another in the same moment in time even. I write or create the story and you experience it tomorrow, yesterday, hopefully not yesterday, then life's very confusing, centuries later. So even that small finite act can be separated by ages, by location, by distance, by context, by history, by life but it still occurs, me pouring out from one decanter into the other and saying, stay time, so that you can experience this world as I might. That's super interesting. You were talking for a moment and that image came to mind and I just sat there and went, I have the right quote for this. <laughs> but that's how I, my roommate in college, Stephen, or Stephen, actually you'd like him, Bill, who's a film major. His graduate paper was on auteur theory. He'd be a good one to have in a conversation with you about that, come to think of it. Because he used Tarantino as his foundation for it, who has some very interesting thoughts on the nature of creation and who owns it and who directs the story. But I was reading an interview where he said that he had to be the one who spit on an actress because he was the only one who could craft it into an art. That's a that's an interesting uh, <laughs> that's an interesting thing to take ownership of. I thought this is a, this is a weird realm for our theory to go into, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I can see you stretching the limits here, but I think something else might be at work. Maybe it's just that you like feet. We know you like feet. You can admit that. <laughs> you don't have to construct a mountain of rhetoric to arrive at that. Yeah, no, this is... But I, the, reason I, the reason I bring Bill up is that he read very early versions of this, and he said, you know, you don't write with a known intent. There's not an agenda or a goal you have in mind in terms of this is the story, here's the destination, here's the ways to define it. The pieces fill and find themselves in the space that's provided. You know, I called the first chapter way back before I broke it into many others, The Valley. And sure enough, when I pulled open Psalm 23, I looked at each line in it and looked at things I described in the piece and said, when at the moment in time, it was just he lived in a small sanctuary and with a house attached in the valley and a village in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow, as the parishioners are walking down through and their shadows are reflecting on the hills wildly, and so on and so forth, straight to the end. And, but it was instructive. I remember that moment. I remember that that becomes part of my story because it was instructive. It helped me understand the ways I had to write and not fight. Because if I try to force that or drive it, then it is almost like trying to reassemble that mountain as it's falling away behind you. You've already lost so much in the first place. Why are you chasing what's gone? Because chances are you'll fall off of it entirely if you don't keep your eye open to where you're headed.
what in your research is a place that you've walked up to and said that is the boundary beyond which I go no further? Trees and forests. No, but honestly, I I think that there are certain aspects of which I sort of take for granted is the wrong word, but that for me, the question itself becomes meaningless the more you ponder it. And I think that that's probably incredibly controversial, but the, the, I, I like to give it as the, as the trilemma of free will. Freemasonism would be great, but doesn't seem to correspond with Actually, let me take a step back. Libertarianism is the idea that we have free will in the way most of us think about it. That given two choices, I could choose either one freely with no, no kind of external constraint on me. And libertarianism says, the problem with libertarianism is it seems to go against what we know. So if I know that you like Coke over Pepsi and you're presented with Coke and Pepsi, I don't actually think that there is a an equal chance that you would take Coke or Pepsi, that you could just go, yeah, by this manifestation of freedom, um, I will take Pepsi, I will take uh, Pepsi. Even if you do decide to take Pepsi, it's probably on the basis of the fact that you want to defy expectations, which is itself a causal mechanism. You're limiting by your own behaviors and actions. Exactly. Compatibilism, sorry, let me start with determinism, is just depressing. <laughs> yes. It also just doesn't make very much sense for human beings who are rational and talk about how we ought to live and we and, and, and telling each other, do this, don't do this, or like punishing people. Like none of that makes sense. For, for not existing in the same world that you would like everyone to. Exactly. Like it doesn't make any sense if determinism is true. And, you know, maybe it is. Um, I don't think so. But, you know, maybe it is. But if it is, it just... All of our behavior is impossibly incoherent. Even if our behavior is impossibly incoherent, it's not like we're going to act any different. So um, the knowledge itself becomes a meaningless thing. Exactly, and 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 then compatibilism is this idea that freedom is uh, non-interference from external constraints um, in an overly simplified version. Effectively, deism. Exactly, but the but the problem is that you know. That's still not what we think freedom is, because we're compatibilist things that, yeah, I am causally determined to choose Coke over Pepsi. But so what? At least I did it for my own reasons. There, there comes a point where the free will debate just becomes meaningless to me, because chances are pretty good that, well, A, never know, and B, the answer probably doesn't look like anything what we think it looks like. But and that's notwithstanding, I, I, you know, a lot of people have done a lot of great work on free will, and I re- and I respect their work. And I had to deal a little bit with free will in my dissertation, which I promptly set aside as fast as I could. I mean, it's um, something as authors we deal with and have to because otherwise our own egos will run rampant. Mm-hmm. I created this. I made it. I own it. It is mine. They are mine. The moment, as we said before, that someone else opens that book, reads the story, watches the show, there is a there's a world and a character that they've made that from what you made that is theirs. Mm-hmm. And even as a fan, I can't and shouldn't take that away from you, right? To, to argue determinism that there is the author's intent. This is the way it is to be read. That's this is right. the way it is to be done for things to continuously create in that realm, because there is no generative force if this is the way. It means all the way back to when the first thing was told, it was the way. And everything's preordained. So yeah, it, it, in creativity, I do in creative work, I do think we struggle with this from a 
not necessarily the same position, but from the same, from practice, I would say, from the yeah. practice, we, we encounter it on a regular basis, that decision of whose choice am I, ref- is this work, is this act reflecting here? Uh, it's it, I actually, it's interesting you say that because I have a similar sort of reaction to the, you know, there's the statement, nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. So who, how is your work? And it's, you right. know, uh, how can you make anything new? Yeah, exactly. So it, how is your work a reflection of the past? Is it something new? And you could get mired down on those questions. And no, I am not encouraging people to like plagiarize. <laughs> that's not what this, that's not what the, the no. intent of this is. But the intent of it is like, what's the point of, you know, at some point, you're just going to say, what is the point of us needlessly miring ourselves in the question of whether or not this is an original work or whether or not this is just, you know, a, re- a repetition of the same story we've seen before? Like, that does nothing for evaluation of whether or not the picture is something beautiful in its own right. And that's kind of how I feel about the free will debate. Like, yeah, I can go on to all of this. Or we could just say, what is that? Like, at the end of the day, none of the answers is going to get us anywhere different than we are now. In a way, you're almost taking the choice of the captain from Candide, who is asked what he does, and he says, I'm an artist, and Candide asked of what, and he says of life. (laughs) Yes, I like that. I have with my students and people I've taught, both for creative work and for consultations on how we're going to promote advertising. How do we make it unique? How do we make it distinct? There doesn't seem to be any way. These are the models. Particularly in business, the evidence always seems to suggest templates, repeatable things. And there's a there's a reason to pursue that because, of course, successful patterns tend to lead to at least moderate levels of success if practiced regularly. And you need that to stay profitable. Likewise, if you're going to publish a book, there are ways to make it promotable and so on. I stumbled upon a business whose actual core model is to crowdsource your book so that as you're writing it, you can get raw data on which things people like as beats, as narrative, as sentence, as characters, et cetera, and which they would favor instead. I had this moment of existential horror. Not to denigrate your own story. Not to not to denigrate or diminish, because I, on one end, I am deeply curious what the results of that will be. Right, I, I would definitely experiment with it on the thing that is not this thing, this book, because this this would not survive in that environment, and I think that's important. My question would be, what kind of story thrives within that environment they've created, and do all of the stories they create fundamentally end up becoming the same thing Netflix stumbled into, which is to reach that market, here are the three beats, here's the number of episodes, et cetera, we can make money on. And mm-hmm. this is a point of diminishing returns at which we should no longer, because of XYZ constraints, pursue. When in reality, if the goals are something else, you might want to push past those boundaries. And it's this is where I think, going back to the creative and philosopher both, there's that question of when is it a fruitless line of work? When in when in the process of being lost in the journey to not being sure of what the return will be or where you'll arrive, do you decide and make that call? Okay, do I cease going this way entirely or do I allow myself a little longer to reside? But I think ultimately that's a personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, I respect those who care about originality, even if I think ultimately it's, it's not a worthwhile thing to think about. Because all of us are grappling with what is there. And when I give the picture, 
what am I giving you? Am I giving you the most accurate representation of what is? Am I giving you my interpretation of what is? Am I giving you something beautiful? I don't think that we can give people those answers. There are a lot of questions for which I can't give you this is the answer. Mm -hmm. But what I can tell you is that this is a bad answer. And I kind of think, <laughs> and I and I can kind of think about that when we ask these questions too. Like I am sure that there are certain things that I look at and go, no, that's that's wrong. That's not right. I'm not I'm not some sort of relativist, but what I am is someone who says there's a pretty good chance that we're just itself not going to know what the best picture is. And I think in a way there becomes this fascinating tension between the desire to pursue all and and answer all of these tests, all of these null hypotheses to arrive at the thing that we'd like to define and the truths that seem to be at the heart of what is definable or bordering indefinite, but also that other side where as we pursue, as we chase it, we begin to wonder if there is a particular place to arrive or if it is the, in publishing, folks ask you, what is your book about? The log line, the slug line, the takeaway. And this is true fiction and not. And you have to give an answer to that because they're making decisions based on very limited space, money, and time, and they need to make very quick decisions on whether or not to invest more of those to make other choices in their life that will affect other lives. So there's a, there's a cascade effect to this based on very small pieces of information that are first conveyed. And it's a weird moment trying to find a way to say what this big thing is in entirety in a small space, because you can't in reality. But it doesn't mean it's not a useful exercise. I talk in my classes about the heart of a scene, the moment that everything, the beat that everything flows to or derives from or follows from. And it is a visceral beat. It should feel like a heartbeat. That's how you'll know that it's alive, that it's right, because it demands and moves the rest of the thing in the direction it wishes to go. And if you don't feel that yet, then you have to dig around through and find the currents either way, what that end, I don't want to call it an end destination, but what that core at heart is like. And yes, this exercise of all of us making, creating, testing, thinking, theorizing, in a similar sense, feels like chasing the beats, whatever they might be, sad, funny, beautiful, weird, or so on, trying to convey, trying to describe, thinking, yes, that's real, no, that's not right. But the actual art of the scene is like the infinite, indescribable, unreachable, perhaps unattainable, but we still try to chase and pursue and define it because mm -hmm. so much else is made in that time. The, what, what does Aristotle say? The, the good life is that at which all actions aim. And it's this super abstract thing. But if you ask me what my good life is or what your good life is, it probably doesn't look like what Aristotle thought it was. I can, I can pretty much assure you of that. But he could probably recognize it as a good life. Yes, I would say so. And so then the question becomes, and I, and I think I think you hit it right on the head, and I think it goes back to the idea of artistic works, or really any work. There's a point at which this stops. Uh, I describe the there's there's sort of a, a a thing in paper writing, which I used to not like about myself, okay. and then over time I realized that it was kind of a built-in subconscious mechanism that I needed to let what I was working on go after the, the like, you know, I can write 
10, 20, 30 drafts. I can read, I can read over a paper a hundred times, but there's a point at which I just stop. And I couldn't tell you what that is. I can't tell you it's the 27th draft. I can't tell you it's the (laughs) 120th every single time, but there's a point at which my brain goes, no, you have thought about this. All there is to think about it or not. You have done that thing and it's time for it to be seen by other people. And, you know, honestly speaking, there's, you know, parts of, uh, if you're familiar with the paper publishing process, part of me, which is already detached and says, okay, I will do these things, but understand that the core project, the core message, the core thing I'm trying to impart has already been done. That that idea, that inner part is unshakable. And that's the part I let it sail. And so I think about, there is a stopping point. There is a point at which you have to put down the you have to put down the paintbrush and say, this is what I have done. This is how I have attempted to capture whatever it was I was trying to capture. And you're done. And the editing process is something different, but or or the the post-production editing process is something different. But I, I think it's very valuable to, to understand that. All of us are engaged in the process of capturing something. There's, when do we stop? The creativity is, as E.O. Wilson would argue, inherent to human nature, whatever we pursue and make in our life. And by that nature, too, even though things don't have a fundamental end, they continue in some other fashion. We just, as our way of understanding things, shape them into beginnings, middle, and ends so that we can make more easily make sense of them, mm-hmm. remember them, and put them away or move on past them. Mm-hmm. After I went through a series of traumas, I've talked about some on the show, but physical, emotional, there was a lot of death, illness, and injury in the family. My coach said to me, this is going to sound silly, but you need to put a capstone to this. You need to button it. And I asked, what do you mean? And she said, I, I, don't, I don't really care what it is. I mean, I care that you do it, but I don't care about the specifics of what you do, because the important thing is that you do it and recognize it as such. And we talked for a while and I said, you know, I haven't been on a vacation, no desire, no aim, no expectations, no demands, no purpose, just to exist. And Aruba was very affordable at the time and I had a little money put aside. So I spent a week there. And one night I was agitated. I couldn't sleep and I walked out to the shore and I wrote down everything inside of me, this tempest in a teapot as it were, going back to the analogy of the decanter of the cup that I no longer needed to have or contain within me. And I wrote it down in the sand. And I stood there waiting for the tide to wash it away and waiting. And finally, I grabbed a clump of everything I had a hand. I grabbed another clump in my other hand. And I started throwing this entire stretch of the beach into the ocean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm tired of waiting. Take it. Have it back. It's yours. And it was immensely cathartic because it was an end. This is no longer mine. I relinquish it. I relinquish ownership and possession of it, of being it, of living it. And did those things happen in my life? Yes. Do they change who I was, who I am now? Certainly. But they no longer have the same presence because they're no longer part of me. And in that same sense, when we create things, when we make, whether it's a product, 
service or solution for someone we're trying to help reach a better point in their life, whether it's a tale that we create for someone else to appreciate and arrive and reflect on and discover something in their life, as you said, that can only occur if there is an end, if there is an acknowledgement that for this, there's a clear sense of what it is, how it is, and why. Mm-hmm. And we're not, that we're not going to, like Van Gogh, be wheeled back into the museum <laughs> with our paintbrush to, or with George Lucas with our digital devices to try to make it into something. And I, I deeply appreciate and understand his desire there because he's trying to make the thing he saw, right? Even if the initial version didn't reach it. We have to let go. And it's such a fundamental part of human existence, but it's also one of the ones I think we all least like. (laughs) That's why I'm so glad it's filled with like, it's filled with just this sense of like, nope, I am done. I I appreciate that about my psychology because otherwise I would never let anything go. If there was, if, if that didn't exist in me, I would never be able to let go of my work. Uh, and as you might imagine, that's really terrible when your work is being obsessed by other people and they need, they need a copy of it. Right, whose career is to obsess over every minute thing you've written. Uh-huh. It's a, if you were to hold on to each word of those as something precious, one, I think it would be the forest for the trees because the value isn't in the individual word. And two, they are fundamentally just the means by which you were trying to arrive at a thing. They're not in themselves, the character the world, the story. They're just the finger pointing toward the moon. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, for instance, me, I do audio playlists. I work with illustrators because I realized, yes, my book could be many things, but I want an illustrated book. And why? Because there are times when I'm writing when rather than being able to describe articulately, as I often can do, what a thing is and is like in that moment, my actual notes are, right, so this particular frame here, we cut off angle, here's the lighting position, here's where we pan out. And I have to sit back and go, you realize this is not a screenplay. Yes, I know that, but here's what it looks like anyway. Were it to be a show or a screenplay, or simply framed as some type of visual illustrated work. And I had that moment of going, well, that's not what books are. And I said, well, why not? (laughs) This is what my book is. (laughs) It's going to have that in there in some form. Do I know it entirety? No. But that creative desire and impulse of saying, this is here as a part in the shape of the story I'm trying to convey. And part of the relinquishment there for me of not taking the Faustian bargain is letting go of what people will make of that. Because the reality is, one, I won't know before they do. And two, I'll never have any control over it. It's interesting that you say that because I, I think the author has an interesting take on that. When I write a paper, I am convinced that somewhere down the line, someone is just going to lay into it. <laughs> like they're just going to like load up the cannons and fire at it. And that's something I've come to peace with. I think that nothing I say is itself bulletproof. And I have not constructed the indefensible argument, but and where, I'd, where I think might be a nice place to leave it, I think there is beauty in the uncertainty. I think that there is itself beauty in the fact that what I have said, what it means, how it contributes to us as a people, if, you know, it, 
you know, it has, if, mm-hmm. I, if I am honored enough for it to do so, is something entirely out of my control. And I think that makes it beautiful because it's fleeting and it's absolutely beyond me. And I don't think that Homer or if indeed there was such a person or uh, more accurately Virgil or um, Aristotle or Hannah Arendt or anybody like that thought that what they said they were sort of more accurately whether they knew that what they said had be would be something that we were reading today and be something that was part of our understanding of the mountain. And I think that so too for us, do I know that what I said will be good? Do you know that the book that you write will be interpreted by all a certain way? No, that we made the picture and that the picture is capable of being interpreted is beautiful to me. And that's beautiful both in the real and the otherworldly sense. Yes, absolutely. There is a feeling of invitation to it. Where they go and what they do once they arrive, that's their journey and for them to decide. But that's all you're doing ultimately is saying, I'd like to invite. Mm -hmm. Stephen, I know you mostly exist in the other worlds and realms. And also in some strange place in the middle of the country that has no name. Uh huh. Uh huh. Where can people reach you or otherwise contact you? Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know anymore. Um, off the grid. I, I didn't intentionally get off the grid, but I definitely, um, I definitely fell off it. How's your tinfoil holding up? <laughs> um, you know, honestly. Uh, uh, if, if they had a question for me, it would probably be better to go through the people I talk with. Not because I'm like some sort of secretive recluse, but just because like whatever, whatever um, avenues I had for engagement are there no longer there. No, no. I, I, I deeply enjoy the idea of treating your brothers like spirit mediums. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that if someone has some pressing question, like Stephen, why did you say this? I mean, if it's important enough to get to me, I'm sure it'll disseminate down the, the framework. And if it's not, then, you know, that's just a more beautiful, our interpretation of the portrait that you're creating for us. Stephen never existed. He was merely a figment of the other two brothers, Herman. And, and uh, we uh, used a post-production uh, voice to simulate his voice <laughs> in, in videos, in podcasts. <laughs> we deep-faked both of them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that would be the worst part if the Brothers Herman didn't exist at all. There was just some studio manufacturing all three of you. I want to point out that would not be very lucrative for whatever studio decided to do that. <laughs> no, this is a work of love. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be a Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.